this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i'm your host g sampath the new tennis season has kicked off with the grand slam which likes to call itself the happy slam the australian open and this year the happy slam has really been a happy one for india for the first time in many years we have had a singles player defeat a seeded player in the main draw of a grand slam with sumit nagal defeating alexander bublik in making it to the second round and we also have a new immense doubles grand slam champion from india which is rohan bopanna who has won the men's doubles title as well so lots of things going well for india uh, in the year's first grand slam and apart from this we also have a new grand slam champion in men's singles with yanik sinner finally coming to fulfill something which has been long expected from him and in the women's section arina sabalenka successfully defending her title as well and uh, of course one of the big news uh, news news topics was of course novak djokovic losing for the first time in the semi finals of the australian open ever uh, in the 20 times he's been there so a lot of things to discuss and in this particular episode which is more or less a wrap up of the two week event we'll be looking at a couple of interesting questions such as uh, will this be the year that gen x finally takes over from the big three of djokovic nadal and federer and how can sumit nagal build on his maiden victory over a top player at a major and what is the significance of bopanna becoming the oldest number one in doubles and winning a slam at the age of 43 and to discuss all these questions we have with us sudarshan narayanan from the hindu sports bureau sudarshan great to have you back at in focus thank you so much sampath uh, great to be here as well so sudarshan uh, to start with uh, I, what, i was just wondering uh, you know what about your thoughts on bopanna's Uh, you know a uh, big victory here i mean it's a fantastic achievement to become the world number 1 at 43 and at the same i think in the same week you also uh, became a grand slam doubles champion for the first time and i was just curious why did it take him so much time he's been playing for a long time i think more than 20 years i think he was partnering with a pakistani uh, top player as well and what were the main challenges in your view that he has had to overcome that we know he he has he's won the mixed doubles title before but that's not considered to be in the same league as the men's doubles so what were the main challenges that he had to overcome that took him such a long time one of the main challenges that he highlighted after this win was the lack of uh, good partners in the sense that doubles partnerships uh, they always uh, tend to find uh, people who complement their uh, styles very well he did have a very good partnership with uh, pablo cuevas uh, around about the same time he won the mixed doubles title at french open in 2017 and then he had a very good partnership with denis shapovalov the problem there was both were accomplished singles players and once they got their singles rankings up they sort of reduced their doubles play so finding the right partner who can complement your game as well as finding double specialists that he highlighted was his biggest problem all these years but here here a great thing uh, here a great thing going with aisam ul haq right i mean yeah, it was he who stopped uh, who broke away uh, because of some olympic related issues or something like why why didn't he get back uh, with him uh, at the olympics 
they did actually try a couple of times because 2010 when uh, rohan reached his first uh, grand slam final which uh, doubles final that was at the 2010 us open uh, isam was his uh, partner and they also qualified for the year ending masters and uh, then i remember they reunited that the chennai open uh, in 2014 i think which i uh, covered so there were these sporadic attempts to reunite and uh, do it and it's also a question of rankings i think 2018 and 19 uh, bopanna's rankings were in good so when you combine two uh, people who are ranked in the 50 or the 60s you basically don't get into the grand slam so that was uh, also a problem and uh, shapovalov's high ranking actually helped him and uh, get on to the uh, tour and uh, notch up a few good wins so i would say there's a combination of these factors uh, his ranking his partner's rankings playing styles and uh, not uh, settling on somebody who was a double specialist so now finally he has matthew abdin who is a double specialist and uh, who has past experience of winning a grand slam and uh, for the past uh, one year it has just been a dream partnership between the two right so when you say uh, the combined rankings of the two players make make it difficult for them to get entry in the grand slams i mean do you are you referring to the doubles ranking of each of the players or it wouldn't matter if the one of the player is ranked high in singles but doesn't have a doubles ranking and still it will make a difference uh, in in terms of entry a few years back they did allow uh, players to enter doubles with their singles rankings i'm not sure if that system is still prevalent but with bopanna and others who don't have a singles ranking it was basically uh, a doubles only ranking uh, i am not exactly sure uh, which ranking of shapovalo was actually considered for him to enter but uh, there was a time in 2018 or 19 when singles players would uh, actually enter doubles with their singles rankings and that sort of put huge pressure on the doubles players because i remember leander once saying that even if you are ranked in the 30s you wouldn't get into a masters tournament because it was only a draw of 32 and uh, especially in places like indian wells which is long drawn one and a half weeks uh, people like stan mavrinka sisipas all, all used to play doubles so that was a problem but i'm not exactly sure whether that system is still prevalent right i mean that would have of course definitely made it uh, very difficult for the likes of bopanna and india has traditionally tended to produce more doubles players than singles one anyway coming to the singles side of uh, Uh, the story uh, so there's now uh, sumit nagal making it through three rounds of qualifying i mean he was denied a wild card which was his to take you know by the aita india's tennis association for you know reasons which didn't seem particularly convincing i mean you get a chance for a wild card with a good candidate to take and run with it and we i mean i don't know what kind of a board or association would do something like that to their one player Yeah, AATA's only power is in Davis Cup, and when Sumit uh, actually said no to Davis Cup in Pakistan, uh, they basically uh, wanted to be uh, small-minded and uh, do this. And I'm not sure this is a uh, behavior that fits a national tennis association, which ultimately, at the end of the day, should look out for the improvement of its players and improvement of the tennis profile in the country. And if Sumit Nagal's entry in an Asia Pacific uh grand slam which calls itself an asia pacific grand slam would have certainly uh, helped increase the profile and we all know what happened now and credit to him he came through three rounds of qualifying won a, a great match against uh, bublik in the first round and suddenly everybody was talking about it and everybody sort of uh, uh, lagged, lagged on to it and there was huge interest and that was sort of 
continued by Rohan Bopanna towards the end. So these two weeks of uh, tennis and the interest it generated should actually tell the AITA that even if they put half their efforts in bettering the game in the country, they can actually uh, see that there is a lot of interest in the game. Right. Sudeshan, I was just wondering, there was a lot of stories and reports uh, around the time Nagal uh, was playing his second round about how he had uh, had to sort of face a lot of financial trouble. When at one point, he had very little money left. I think some 800 euros or something was the figure being quoted left in his account. And now uh, everybody uh, seems to believe uh, that the prize money he would be taking home from his second round appearance uh, would sort of set him up for the rest of the year. I mean, is that uh, likely or is it like uh, still a bit of a stretch? Because, you know, we know how expensive it is for singles players uh, to make things, uh, you know, happen, you know, the travel and uh, not taking a coach along and physiotherapies along. All those things cost a lot of money. So how how much of a platform do you think this Australian Open performance will be for Nagal? And what more does he need to do in his game? I mean, we saw the game against JC Shank who was like, I think, seven or eight years younger than him and was really playing brilliantly. And how, how like, where does he go from this? It, I mean, instead of, I mean, would it just be like a good payday or would it be something more than that so that we can see him develop and maybe make it to the top 30, top 40 at some point? It will definitely give him a lot of confidence. In terms of pay, I feel that it will take care of his travel for the rest of the year, at least. And uh, if you actually enter... Uh, tournaments with hospitality, which is there in most high-ranked, uh, high-end challengers and ATP 250 onwards, the hospitality for the player and the coach is taken care of. So, if that is taken care of and then he has the money uh, to book his flights and other stuff, so it should set him up for the year. Though there will be other expenses like he might uh, need to get nutrition supplements, supplements and other things. But uh, the majority of the cost should be covered by uh, uh, what he has uh, achieved at the Australian Open. In terms of tennis, I think it sets him up really well because Sumit generally tends to play better uh, as the clay season starts. And uh, he has got uh, a good number of points from this uh, uh, tournament. Uh, three rounds of qualifying also have uh, ranking points and then the first round. And uh, he has basically stayed relatively injury-free. And one of Sumit Nagal's uh, problems or in, in general, the talented Indian players' problems has always been that they have not uh, be particularly played a full season without injury. Now, he, is, he looks in good shape and immediately uh, in the next month, we have three challengers at home. Uh, he can make good use of those challengers and then... Uh, from uh, March and April when the European play season starts. It can actually go, be a good springboard for this period of uh, the year when he generally tends to have good results. So, I think it should give him a lot of confidence and considering he's on the, just on the outside of uh, top 100, uh, his main aim now should be to get into the French Open main draw without any uh, wild card or having to come through the qualifying. And if he gets some good results in the next few months, I'm sure that's possible. Right. And, and, and as far as his tennis goes, where do you think, uh, let's say, would, what uh, maybe two or three areas which you think, uh, which you might want to identify as, as areas where he, he can actually, if he is able to make quick improvements, it will make a big difference to his uh, competitive outcomes? I think his serve, because he's not blessed with great height. So he has to make do with more accurate serves 
and where he serves and spot serving. So, otherwise, especially uh, against a player like uh, Zhang, we saw in the Australian Open uh, that uh, they can be easy pickings, especially from uh, somebody who is uh, a bit taller and a bit more powerful. So, I think his uh, fastest improvement uh, that he can make is in his serve, uh, where he can get more accurate on his serve and put more balls into play so that he's in the point. Right, right. And I was also I mean, watching his match and I thought he was, when under pressure situations, he tends to become a little passive. I think he was pretty passive uh, uh, with Shang. And I, against Bublik, I think he got a little bit lucky as well because uh, even on the match point situations, he got a double fault and that was taken care of. Maybe mentally also he needs to work on uh, on the mental aspect as well, do you think? Yeah, and uh, only when you play at this level, when you have uh, so many opportunities, will you also learn. Because challenges can uh, get you to a certain level, but tour-level tennis is uh, definitely a bit uh, higher, I would say, especially in the latter rounds. And uh, when you are up against uh, the best 128 players in the world, you will be put under uh, these pressure situations. And if he actually plays more at this level, if, he, if he's consistently in the top 100, where he will consistently play the Grand Slams as a result. I think he should get better at these situations. Right. I think uh, we can all hope uh, for the best and keep our fingers crossed that he has a great uh, 2024. Moving on to the rest of the men's uh, draw, uh, Sudarshan. So, were you surprised by Djokovic's uh, semi-final exit when he played against uh, Sinner? A lot lot was expected from that match, but it didn't really uh, go the way many thought it would. He didn't go to five sets and Djokovic didn't really uh, play at the level he was supposed to, I mean, he was expected to play. I would say I was a bit surprised because he looked very flat. I have not seen uh, Djokovic so flat in uh, recent times. There will at least be some things he'll be trying to do or some things that may work. And a lot of people actually thought that the third uh, uh, set might uh, change things. But I felt Sinner was extremely good. Uh, his pressure handling was superb uh, in the match. And uh, even in the third set, he was serving behind. And generally, when you serve at 3-4, 4-5, these are these are opportunities that the big three, especially, or the big four, I would say, the top, uh, top uh, players won't let go of. One, one break, they will try to get there. And Sinner's serve in those games was superb. And even in the tie break, it was a case of very small margins because Djokovic had two mini breaks and Sinner came back with two mini breaks of his own. So I will say even if even when he lost that third set and people were anticipating that Djokovic will make a comeback because he has done it so many times uh, from that situation. For once, I think Sinner was still the better player and uh, he kept his head and uh, that's what actually uh, got him across the line. Right. That, that was quite a bit of a surprise for many because when earlier uh, Sinner had been in similar situations and uh, he had lost having won the first two sets against Djokovic, I think, at Wimbledon. And uh, there were uh, people raising doubts about his mental strength and all. But now I think he has finally put that to bed. And coming to the final solution, Medvedev, we know him. In, they, I think they played a lot of finals last year. I think the last three matches they played all of them Sinner won having lost the previous six and yet when 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 they came out to play the first two sets uh, Medvedev was all over him 
was wondering can you talk a little bit about what kind of tactical changes or adjustments uh, medvedev made in the first two sets against sena that he was like so dominant and then what changed from the third set onward i think one thing that uh, we could notice is that medvedev played uh, sena the way the same way he played uh, hurkach and uh, after the hurkach match actually he explained what he did with his return position in that uh, on court interview with uh, jim courier and where he said uh, generally he stands way uh, behind the baseline so that the ball sort of slows down and then and then he takes a full swing i think with both uh, sinner and hurkach the ball never slowed down or it didn't slow down until it reached uh, medvedev so he took up uh, pretty good aggressive return positions and with sinner uh he did say that he was not going to have the physical advantage medvedev was coming into the match playing 25 sets uh i think it was the most by anybody uh until the semi final he had gone through multiple five round five sets matches and one of the matches he finished at 2 am so his whole idea was to shorten the points and sinner is extremely powerful in long rallies and uh, as much as he hits these winners uh, he is pretty much he doesn't crack in those uh, long rallies which is a big advantage so even medvedev thought that he would not last physically so i think that sort of explained why uh he was so aggressive in the first two sets and i felt he he relaxed a bit in the third there were moments uh, i think it was 4-4 and dues and there were a couple of tentative points which if medvedev had played differently the match result might have been uh, different so i think the first two sets he was extremely aggressive which we have not seen medvedev do uh, against a lot of other players right i mean yeah i think it was the, the physical uh, amount of uh, you know the amount of matches medvedev uh, had had to play as in the amount of time he had to spend on the court and that must have made a difference definitely 25 sets in two weeks is definitely uh, not a joke and coming to the women's uh, side of the event uh, sudarshan so i mean we finally had uh, shinwen zheng uh, making it to the final of a grand slam she was voted the most improved player on the wta last year and uh, and sabalenka shinwen final even a lot was expected of it but it turned out to be a one sided uh, affair do you think uh, shinwen zheng has the game or had the game to have made more of a match of it than it turned out to be or uh, it was expected given how well sabalenka had been playing uh, through the fourth night i would say a bit of both sablanka was supremely confident the way she was playing uh, through the fourth night she hadn't lost a single set and uh, more importantly her serve and her plus one shots were firing and zheng was a bit tentative i would say uh, in the final and uh, it also didn't help that she didn't she hadn't faced any uh, of the top 50 players until she came to the final because her side of the draw had completely opened up Yeah, why? Why does this? I was just going to. I was just going to ask you about this. Why does this seem to keep happening with the women's draw? I mean, we saw this happen with Emma Raducanu's uh, U.S. Open campaign the year she won it. I mean, I don't think she faced any top ten player either until she, until all the way to the final. And this time, uh, Shinwen uh, faced her first top ten player in the final, and she lost. And uh, you know, on the other hand, the other side of the draw of Shinwen, we had all these top players knocking each other out. and you uh, know you have shinwen making it all the way without uh, facing a top player like why does this seem to keep happening in the women's uh, side of the draw is there any particular reason you think 
I'm not sure if I have any particular reason because it, it does seem very quirky. And uh, even in that uh, US Open that you mentioned, I think Leila Fernandez, like you said, had to beat every top player on the other side because she beat Osaka. She beat so so many top players just to get to the final. And uh, I think this time it was uh, like three or four uh, upsets uh, sort of uh, sent a lot of uh, top seeds tumbling. I think. Jessica Pegula lot lost early in the second round if i am not mistaken uh, Ribakina lost in the second round uh, Shiantek lost in the first week so there were just these odd one or uh, one or two uh, results which sort of just opened up the draw and uh, yeah Kokogov versus Sabalenka was one semi that people would have expected but uh, the other side i don't think anybody would have even expected uh, the same finals we got Right, right. And on the men's side, uh, Sudarshan, I, mean, uh, I was just watching the various new names uh, which have come up, and and some of those guys, uh, they their level of their game is really. I mean, I found it very impressive. You know, Arthur Kazo, the French guy, Dino Prismich, you must have seen the what a fight he gave to Djokovic, and Alex Michelson, who uh, who played a very good uh, match against Alexander Zverev. I mean, do you think these guys have the potential to challenge the likes of Sinner, Alcaraz, Rune, or are they more of a top 20 rather than a top 5 material? I mean, what do you think of these new young players coming up? Maybe not yet, but uh, when Rune and uh, Runa and Sinner were coming up uh, initially, say some uh, four years back, we all thought the same and they all uh, went on to be, uh, become good players. So, I think they all have uh, time on their side. Frankly, I have not watched that much of them because the challenger circuit is where uh, these guys predominantly play and uh, they do get into these uh, grand slams once in a while. But uh, we should always be sort of... I mean, if somebody is good enough to get into the 128 in the grand slam, uh, I feel they can they can uh, pretty much uh, go higher. Top 5, top 20, uh, I'm not sure if I can uh, really hazard a guess on that. but. Uh, they must be made of a certain level to be playing in a Grand Slam. So, I'll, I'll still watch out for them. Right. I mean, I think that's a, that's a very good uh, point. Well made. I think if, I, if a player is made it to the top 128, I think they definitely uh, would have a great potential to make it to the top 20. Especially if they are teenagers like Alex Michelson is or... Uh, 2021, like Dino Prismich and Arthur Kazoban, who all gave a very good account of themselves against top players like Urkach and Zverev and so on. Anyway, I think uh, we, we would love to go on uh, chatting, but one last question before we uh, wind up, uh, Sudarshan. So, I mean, last it has been pointed out by many uh, that the, the generation, the new generation, the Gen X, the players born in the 2000s, I think now have more Grand Slam titles than the 90s generation, which was basically just two with Dominic Thiem and uh, Medvedev. And now Sinner and Alcaraz between them have uh, three titles. And those three titles have come at the expense of uh, the big three, you know, uh, so unlike uh, the, the other two guys from the 90s. So is this finally the year when Gen X takes over firmly from the big three or is they, are, oh, they have to wait longer? What do you think? I do want to believe that it's the change. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to happen uh, either this year or uh, next year. Uh, Sinner uh, seems ready and uh, Alcaraz, though he has had a bit of an up and down uh, the last few months, 
someone who has uh, thrilled us so much uh, with his first two uh, Grand Slam uh, tournaments and uh, seems so full of potential. I think he is also here to stay. And these two can actually headline the uh, next uh, uh, decade of tennis. So I do feel that uh, there's a transition coming. Uh, I don't think Nadal will last beyond this year because uh, he has had an injury setback. He's coming back. So Djokovic is probably the last uh, man standing. And uh, Sinner actually showed that uh, Djokovic can actually be beaten tennis-wise at this stage of his career, uh, even if he's not physically suffering or uh, any other reason. So I do feel the change of guard is imminent, maybe this year or definitely next year. Right. The change of guards does seem imminent. And for the moment, maybe the big three could be uh, Djokovic, Alcaraz and Sinner. But very soon, I think the, the, the Djokovic slot might be taken by one of the others. Maybe Runa, maybe somebody we don't know yet. Uh, but who's going to bust onto the scene in 2024 or next year. Thank you so much, Sudarshan, for uh, sharing your insights and observations. Absolute pleasure discussing tennis with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, uh, Sandra. Pleasure to be here as well. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.